Hey, welcome to the Pittsburgh City Paper Podcast. I'm Alex Gordon. Today's show, we're diving into this week's music issue, talking with music editor Margaret Welsh and editor Charlie Deach about our Three Days in the Life cover story. If you haven't seen it, here's the pitch. Over the weekend of April 9th, the City Paper staff and one Weird Paul attended more than 20 shows, productions, parties, across every type of genre, and then we reported back our findings to you. My two shows involved ukuleles and Wiz Khalifa, but separately, sadly. One of the shows Margaret attended included the notable local stomper and fiddle player Jen Gooch, who was nice enough to join us in the studio for a chat and a few songs. Also today, Celine explores the tradition of salt-rising bread with the Rising Creek Bakery. It's a great story, so definitely stick around for that. But first, we're continuing with our coverage of the election Today, with Ashley Murray's latest audio postcard, this one from Donald Trump's visit to Pittsburgh last week. Enjoy. Let's make America great again! Some people have taken advantage of Mr. Trump's hospitality by choosing to disrupt his rallies by using them as an opportunity to promote their own political messages. While they certainly have the right to free speech, this is a private event paid for by Mr. Trump. If a protester starts demonstrating in the area around you, please do not touch or harm the protester. This is a peaceful rally. In order to notify the law enforcement officers of the location of the protester, please hold a rally sign over your head and start chanting, Trump, Trump, Trump. Ask the people around you to do likewise until the officer removes the protester. Thank you for helping us make America great again. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the next President of the United States, Mr. Donald J. Trump. Y'all ready for this? Thank you, Pittsburgh. We love Pittsburgh. Love it. Thank you very much. Wow, a great crowd, huh? Wow, just beautiful. Thank you. So nice. So nice. We are going to bring back your coal industry and your steel industry, we're bringing it back. Remember that. We're bringing it back, folks. So, I know Pittsburgh, have a lot of friends. Big Ben is a friend of mine. Big Ben, do we love Big Ben? I know a lot about Pennsylvania, and it's great. 
How's Joe Paterno? Are we going to bring that back? Right? How about, how about that whole, how about that whole deal? And we do love Penn State. Do we love Penn State? I mean, in all fairness. We love Penn State, but we love Pittsburgh, right? It's Steel City. And when I'm president, guess what? Steel is coming back to Pittsburgh, and a lot of other things are coming back. So that's the way it is. He says, build the wall. You're right. We're going to build the wall. Don't worry about it. We're going to build the wall. Next, Margaret and I sit down with Jen Gooch. I first heard about Jen through a show for uh, Women in Sound, the zine, their release show, and uh, it pretty much just bowled me over. If you've seen her before, you've probably been similarly bold. If you haven't, you're in luck, because she played a few tunes for us in the studio. Here's the chat with music editor Margaret Welsh and Jen Gooch. Blake, Jake, David came rolling through the hill and down the valley, shady. Dance was singing to the wild wood rang, and he charmed the heart of a lady. Charmed the heart of a lady. Would you leave your house, your home? Would you leave your baby? Would you leave your wedded love? Go off, Black Jack, baby. Go off, Black Jack, baby. Do you want to just start by telling me about yeah, this guitar that you're holding? Yes, this is Slim. He's a. 1967 Gibson tenor guitar, uh, short a couple strings. I started playing tenor instruments um, mostly because I'm a lazy violinist. <laughs> and they're so I keep this thing tuned the way I, I, you would tune a fiddle and got some heavier strings on it and tune it down. Uh, C, C, D, A, G. Sorry. G, D, A, E. I don't know where any of those <laughs> other letters came from. <laughs> and... Um, and so, yeah, I tune it in fifths and kind of get, it gets a little bit of a different sound. Um, right. So I've, I've been enjoying this guy. I started playing tenor instruments because I moved up here for grad school. It's been almost a decade now. Mm. And some friends took me to the Pittsburgh Banjo Club. Mm -hmm. And that's what all those guys play, those little tenor banjos, the four-string four banjos. Yeah. So when I realized they made instruments tuned in fifths like that, then I kind of <laughs> got into it and, and have 
and that's how I got this guy. Yeah. So when you first came here, you said it was like a decade ago. <laughs> yeah. What was your first impression of like Pittsburgh music? I guess before Banjo Club, before you were enlightened to that. <sighs> that's a tough question. I, co- I I grew up outside Dallas, and Texas has just a real interest in music scene. And as an adult, I lived a lot in Denton, Texas, which has an amazing music scene. You could just throw a rock and hit and not just a good musician but a musician can play five things well you know (laughs) just some really great bands and musicians coming out of that area and I have to admit when I moved up here I felt a bit out of place Uh, I also wasn't a musician at the time so it's weird like the Pittsburgh music scene is very different than the scene back home but at the same time this is where I started making music and um, and I think for me the comparison now to what it was like 10 years ago is mo- I'm mostly aware of what it's like to be a woman musician in Pittsburgh because it was really lonesome. I felt like I knew myself and Hallie Pritz, <laughs> you know, Boca Chica and, and Carrie Battle and, and, How- and the Harlan Twins. I just didn't know that many f- women musicians and it, it just felt really lonely and it's hard. It ain't easy making music and it sure as hell ain't easy making music when you're a woman. And so... So, yeah, I, I feel like it's been real interesting to see the scene grow in the last 10 years because as a, as a woman musician, it's just not the same place. It's, mm. it's just there's so much more community now. I, I started grad school. I, I got my MFA at CMU. It was a rough time. I'd moved up and I was like 20. I started grad school when I was 20, 28, 29, freshly divorced, never lived out of Texas, never lived outside the DFW era. And I just moved sight unseen, picked up and moved to Pittsburgh and and it was it was a real rough time and that and that's when I started making music I saw those banjos I grabbed a banjo and just kind of wrote just a slew of angsty <laughs> songs to get to handle what I was going through at the time and and um and that that was in the, in the mix there sort of what made me take a hiatus was sort of you know I, I'd played a few gigs and I was playing with this tenor banjo and whatever um but I I'd inevitably, just by the style of music that I'm playing and, and, and being a, a solo artist often, um, you would be the opener, you know, and you so you open up and, and you still have to deal with this sound guy that's an asshole or whatever bands. And you, I, I just, you know, you get confronted with a lot of, both a lot of sexism and then just a lot of musician ego, which sex aside, we all got, you know, and... And I realized that I started being confronted with, with what I didn't know, you know, and and that became overwhelming. So part of the reason I took a break was just to figure out, like, what are these chords called? <laughs> what hole does this plug go in? And what do I call this stuff? What do I ask for when I need? You know, all of that the kind of technical stuff um, that can can really get in the way of your ex- like of your experience and then if you're a woman and you don't know that stuff then it can be it can really make the the sexism that you might experience in a at a gig even worse you know and so so that was that was part of it but but the other thing too is that the the more that I you know research it and listen to even more artists and you just go to a lot of live shows then you you it does start to to make you realize like oh man there's <laughs> There's so many, so many better musicians out there, and and I, I feel like that's that's something that people don't realize when you look at a musician on stage is they 
even if they're not the music, best musician in the world, they know it. I know I'm not the best, you know, I'm not the best musician, not the best singer, but uh, but deciding that, that despite that, you still have something to say and hope that there's people that want to hear it, you know. In the parking lot of the pawn shop where I sold the fiddle at our daddy bar, I put the money in my bra. I rode my bike away In a kosher deli with a heavy belly I saw a picture of Ariel Shrum being buried in the prison fire That took dead away Remember funeral prancing with pomp and circumstance Our sorrows were drowned by that dark romance of heaven Everyone you know in the melancholic trains in a pinstripe suit. The other thing, too, is some of the, the most influential musicians on me early on, and that's, that's a huge thing, too, growing up in church, because not a lot of kids are around live musicians. Mm -hmm. You just aren't. And then maybe you get tossed a flute when you get to middle school or whatever. <laughs> but I was around some really amazing musicians, you know, and a lot of them were women because mm -hmm. the men preached and the women played the piano or whatever. I was also, when you were talking about your background, I was thinking of um, the story that you told at that uh, Carrie Newcomer show when you said that where you come from, if you play the piano, that means... You, you're gonna marry a preacher or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> if you wanted to marry well, you know, uh -huh. then you wanted to be, well, like I learned to sew because I was in this religion and we learned like domestic crafts. But as a musician, if you could play piano, your chances of marrying a preacher were much higher. Um, there was one one evangelist couple that came through and she played violin, so that was a influence on me. There were a couple of the reasons that I, I really got interested in violin, pa. And Laura, the the Little House on the mm -hmm. Prairie, Laura Ingalls Wilder series, he played by, you know, this yeah. was like a huge, and like it's it's kind of embarrassing what a, a huge uh, influence that whole book series was on my life. Um, but, but yeah. You, know, you mentioned that you weren't allowed to listen to rock music. Um, is there a, a, I assume you listen to a lot of different things now, but it, was there like a specific album that you heard? Um, like a rock record that you were like, whoa, this is, music can be like this, or that felt really dangerous and exciting to you? Yeah. Man, my answer is going to make me, it makes me feel old and also, <laughs> like, stereotypical. No, so, yeah, I, my dad got religion when I was eight, and I had his music prior to that. You know, we listened to what our parents listened to as kids, and then we rebel, right, yeah. in middle school or whatever. So I didn't get to rebel. So I love 70s music. That's my dad's stuff, you know. Um, I Like, just straight-up yacht rock. I love that stuff, <laughs> you know. Um, and then when he got religion, he – it was five days a week singing singing in choir, singing alto. So that, that really helped expand my my literal voice and my ear and the way that I hear and make music. Um, when I, but when I, um, I, I, my rebellion was classical music. It was this gray area. So they're like, okay, if you want to listen to that old <laughs> stuff, it's okay. So I went deep into that, and uh -huh. that's that was uh -huh. my rebellion. I, I studied started studying violin, and I kind of rejected country and got and fiddling. I really wanted to be 
classier than um, than my surroundings, and so I, I really delved into to classical violin. I got a scholarship to Southern Methodist University, and that's how I kind of was able to, and I got a seat in like the Urban Symphony Orchestra and was able to pay my rent so I could leave my family's home, and that was a big deal. Women didn't really do that where I was, you know, growing up with in this religion. We kind of you know, you were on the family track, um, and so so I strayed uh, hard, and I remember there was, um, I was working in the library, uh, the, the the AV library of, the, of Southern Mothers University, and there was this, a class that, um, like a rock and roll history class, and the professor had his CDs there. So yeah, I listened to OK Computer, Radiohead, and that album's in my, it's a great album, it's such a good album. Uh, now I'm going to go home and listen to it. Um, but you know, it's got compound meter, it's got, you know, a lot of the stuff that classical musicians argue that pop music is missing, you know, um, and and it, it was a really intriguing album to me. So that, yeah, that's the album that came to mind. Up as a motherless trailer park brat, dark shadow in every corner, saying, Girl, where's your daddy? First thing you learn about having shit kicked from you is that you rarely survive without throwing a punch or two. Hard woman is the elephant in every damn room. Hard woman can't speak without pissing off. Can't teach them with your preaching, can't reach them with your loving, won't catch this hard woman in shoes of can't run. Every girl's got an uncharted world in her head, overlooked by the turf war between her legs. The size of the pot can stunt the size of its tree. The state of Texas ain't big enough for a woman like me. A hard woman is the elephant in every damn room. A hard woman can't speak without pissing off a few. Can't teach them with no preaching, can't reach them with no loving. Won't catch this hard woman in shoes of can't run. Most folks won't stand close to this fire inside. Pissing vinegar's the formula keep my ass alive. It ain't down worrying me, it's this living alone's killing me. But reckon alone's the only home I've ever known. Hard woman's the elephant in every damn room. A hard woman can't speak without pissing off a few. Can't teach him with no preaching, can't reach him with no loving. Won't catch this hard woman in shoes of country. Hard woman is the elephant in every damn room. Hard woman can't speak without pissing off a few. Can't teach him with your preaching, can't reach him with your loving. Won't catch this hard woman in shoes of country. Won't catch this hard woman. Won't catch this hard woman, won't catch this hard woman, and she's a kangaroo.
Thanks so much to Jen Gooch for the chat and the songs. Now, if you've seen our music issue, you probably noticed that there are photos from four different shows on the cover. That's just a fraction of the performances that City Paper staff had tended to create our Three Days in the Life cover story, which documented the range of music that can be found here in the Berg in just 72 hours. Here to talk about it, it's editor Charlie Deach and music editor Margaret Welsh. Hi, Margaret. Hi. And regular editor Charlie Deach. <laughs> Nothing special here. How are you, Alex? I'm pretty good, pretty good. All right, so we did something kind of cool. Pretty excited about it. It's out today. Charlie, do you want to explain the concept that we did for uh, this music issue? Yeah, we actually had the the idea a few months ago when uh, <laughs> the unfortunate happened to Philadelphia City Paper. They went, uh, they were bought out and then immediately shuttered. It was supposed to be the week of their music issue, and their editor had this plan to do basically Philly music in one night, send out as many writers and photographers as he could, and um, do this. Well, instead of that, he's writing basically a post mortem on this on the Philly City Paper. So the, one of the lines he writes in there is. I still think this is a good idea. I hope somebody does it someday. And so I think the next day I read, I think Margaret had actually seen it too, and we sort of had the, the idea that let's uh, let's try that idea. Um, the editor, Patrick Rappa, he actually also writes the intro for this week's uh, oh, sweet. piece. Yeah, Margaret, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, the shows that people went to and uh, how you put that together? Well, basically, we, instead of doing one night, uh, we did the whole weekend, um, and so everybody on staff went out and, uh, you know, wrote about what they experienced at various shows, and well, it was a cool weekend for me because, um, of course, music is sort of work for me to an extent, going to shows is work, uh, and I sort of was able to uh, remember how fun going to shows can be, um, and it was fun to get uh, to be out all weekend and then be getting texts from my coworkers about what they were doing and saying, like, oh, I have this idea. Should I go to this show? And kind of, like, adding things on at the last minute. All right, Margaret. So how many events did we cover this weekend? Well, we had 12 writers and photographers at 23 events. Uh, we had we went to a show at the Unitarian Church. Um, one of our photographers, John Colombo, went to a rave. Nice. Spirit. We went to Spirit's uh, first year anniversary, which was a big event. I actually had a great stream of consciousness text from John Colombo from the rave. There's no one here. There's no one dancing. There's no one singing. There's no one here. I said, well, just take a picture. Oh, wait. There's someone here. People are dancing. It's okay. I have this now. So that was, <laughs> those are the texts I got from John Colombo over the course of like 40 minutes on Friday night. Wow. It's dramatic. He's very thorough. <laughs> yes. Charlie, you wrote about the whiz, yeah? Yes, I went to the Wiz at Perry Traditional Academy, and it was uh, it was neat to see because I th when you think about, oh, I'm going to go see a high school musical, maybe you think of going to Kappa or something like that. And yeah. there were actually other suburban schools that were having their musicals this mm -hmm. weekend. I believe uh, Little Mermaid was also going on, but I chose the Wiz at Perry, and it was it was a great experience. There were a lot of talented kids there, but more than that, it was just like a community gathering that showed up for this. It was everybody was so happy and proud to be there. It was just kind of a neat a neat thing, and. Um, Photographer Renee Rosensteel, you'll see on the cover, has got a great shot from, uh, from, that, uh, from that show. It was, it was really good. So. Cool. All right, so I'm going to shift uh, subjects right now. Uh, Margaret's actually already aware of what I'm going to talk about. But last week, was I had a big moment. Something kind of big happened for me. I went to go buy a record at a place downtown, and they were listening to Songs of Love and Hate by Leonard Cohen. Uh, and he was 
just growling and yelling and being ridiculous. And I, I never heard this album. I never really heard much Leonard Cohen aside of uh, Hallelujah. So it was kind of a big moment. I was like, it's finally happened. I'm 28 years old. I finally like Leonard Cohen. And it kind of, I don't know, to me it feels like being mature. It feels like being an adult. It's like one of those big moments uh, in being a music fan. So I wanted to ask you guys if you ever have artists that, when you listen to them, when you got into them, you're like, you know what? I feel like an adult now. Like it's, I'm, I feel really mature. Well, um, for me, Leonard Cohen is kind of that um, to some extent, but more his uh, middle period, his difficult to handle '80s synth stuff, which I'm trying to get Alex into. Well, yeah, and I'm not there yet. No, it's okay. Yeah. Um, it takes time. But um, uh, Steely Dan, for me, in a way, um, even though uh, we were just talking earlier about how. Uh, Dirty Work is such a great song, yeah. but when I would hear that on the radio as a kid, it, I felt like the feelings that it gave me were kind of like grown-up feelings. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that sounds le- that's less creepy than it sounds, actually. It was actually. a confusing time for Margaret. Yes. Yeah. Um, but it it was like getting me in, in touch with this like d- sort of adult trauma. Uh, huh. Um, well, it's and fu- yeah, with, with Steely Dan, though, it's like that's sort of like I think as a – you know, in late teens or early 20s, you might be self-conscious about it. And that mm-hmm. just more has to do with being like, well, I don't give a shit anymore. So yeah. if this is a good song, I'm going to, this has an excellent sax solo. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to, you know, just throw it out the window. And, you know, it was something that my dad was into and the album art's like kind of just off-putting in a way. Definitely not very like something that a kid would really be drawn to. Um, so, yeah, I guess that's a big one for me. What about you, Charlie? I don't, I don't think I have anything <laughs> that... Uh, <laughs> Earth shattering. Oh, see, for me, like when I grew, I grew up uh, in the seventies and the eighties. Um, my mother was into. My dad was into big band at the time. My dad was older than my mother. My mother was into Elvis Presley, Gene Pitney, like fifties and sixties singers. So that's what I started listening to. Mm. So I still to this day I love I love old R and B and old uh, old uh, old doo wop music. Um, but for me, like it was really when I went because then I listened to, like the eighties shit that we all listened to in high school if you grew up in the 80s if you didn't then you didn't um but uh but when i got to college i that's when i started to experience um believe it or not i started to experience um like picking my own music i guess for Mm. lack of a better word so i was listening to um i was listening to uh to bands like body count and wu-tang that's when i discovered the wu-tang clan in college and that's when i actually felt like growing (laughs) up because i was picking like i was the one who you know, thirty six chambers is like thirty six chambers changed my life. Yeah, There's wait, no two question. questions. Where did yeah. you go to school? Youngstown State. Okay, so it's not a regional reason to get into Wu Tang. No, <laughs> no. Um, um, yeah. So what did bring thirty six chambers into your life? I was. Uh, I don't. You know. I don't know. Um, I was working at the at the. Um, I was working at the school, at the college newspaper, and somebody had somebody was playing it, and I and I liked. Um, I forget which song it was. Um, but I liked it, and so I went out and got the record, and I think I actually wrote a review. I knew nothing about hip-hop, but I wrote mm. a review about – I still don't know much about music, period, but <laughs> I still write stuff. Um, but I wrote a review, and I loved it. And then we got in the mail, we got a copy of uh, uh, Body Count, which was Ice-T's metal uh, band, uh, Cop Killer on the thing. Yeah. And it was – again, it was something that was just like, man, I shouldn't be listening to this. Man, this is awesome. And, you know, mm. and um, But that, I think like when I got into hip-hop, I know it's like this you know, fat white guy getting into hip-hop, but – I found a band out of Philly called The Goats. I love The Goats. The Tricks of the Shade was their first record. I love The Goats. And so when I kind of got into hip-hop, that's when I felt grown up. Not, like, mature necessarily, <laughs> but that's when I felt like grown up and, like, picking my own music and stuff. Wow. So, Yeah, I think about this stuff a lot because I maybe this is specific to me, but when I was growing up, um, 
you know, my dad showed me a lot of uh, contemporary music at the time, which was like Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Soundgarden. And I remember thinking, even though he was like 40 years old and probably much cooler than I was, when I was like seven or eight, I remember thinking I could still like join Nirvana Mm -hmm. and that I could still like if they saw like me and my dad together, they'd be like, let's hang out with Alex. I think they still have an opening for lead singer. (laughs) They do. Yeah. Well, Paul McCartney. Yeah. Well, either way. Um, But I just it's so weird to think back. I literally remember thinking that I might be able to join Nirvana, might be able to be in Pearl Jam and that my dad didn't get it who my dad totally got it more than I ever could at seven or eight years old but I don't know I think when you look back your perspective on music as a kid is is kind of a delusional which is pretty awesome I think Mm -hmm. I, I like looking back on that did you have any fantasies about joining a band Margaret um I did not like specific I didn't have you know I I have a friend who um dreamed of being in Boys to Men and he was like just a little blonde boy with like a <laughs> like a bowl haircut. Did which he have is such moves? a funny Did he have moves? Not really. Did he sing? No. Oh gosh, okay. So <laughs> I love that image. Um, you know, I always kind of uh, you know, wanted to like be a singer in a band or something, but I didn't have that. Um I mean, my memories of um of music as a kid are more about um like music that was scary and I, I think that something a feeling that I really cherish now is when I get that feeling of hearing a song or a band and I'm like well, this feels dangerous and this feels the way that music you know when I was like 12 or 11 or you know around that age and I heard Rage Against the Machine for the first time mm. and it was like this is there's something dangerous about that and I can you know I rarely tap into it but when I do it just feels really great yeah I don't know I don't want to I, I was surprised when you first told me that you love Rage <laughs> Why? Yeah, that's 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 what we're getting to. <laughs> uh, I don't know. It's just it's so um, it's so uh, straightforward. I don't mm-hmm. know, and it just sort of, and also just because they kind of inspired a lot of truly, truly awful music mm-hmm. um, in the '90s. I don't know. It just wasn't one that I pictured. Just wasn't one that I pictured. So was it immediate? Was it from the first album for you? Yeah, I was also. I'm probably totally off on like my my memory of that of my age at the time just on the record but uh um yeah it was just like I remember feeling like almost dizzy because it was just like so intense and I never really um you know you mentioned a lot of the other bad music that was kind of spawned by that or came out at the same time and I wasn't necessarily into the stuff that was surrounding it um so there was just something that was very specific about that and uh, I'm now, I mean, I tend to be a somewhat defender of new metal and the like resurgence of new metal in in music in general. Um, but I think that Rage Against the Machine kind of stands on its own. Yeah, Charlie, I think Margaret's also. Fan? Uh, no, uh, I'm a big Corn fan. Speaking okay. of the shit that was spawned mm-hmm. by Rage, right. um, but I think that Margaret actually is a defender of a lot of stuff that people don't like, and not. I mean, not maybe she doesn't like it, but. Margaret's, I think, very much a person where if that's what you like, I mean, somebody you shouldn't talk shit about something because somebody enjoys yeah. the stuff that you think it might be shit. So it's 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 kind of good, and I think that's what makes her a great music editor Absolutely. too because you know she's willing to listen to anything. <laughs> like she likes the uh, the Taylor Swift, for example. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, everybody does. <laughs> I, well, I think that um, the only thing that bothers me, um, like from working in a record store of sorts, uh, people would always act embarrassed about things they were buying and I was like I literally was not thinking about what you were buying at all like I there's zero judgment whatsoever right. um, and the thing that bothers me is when when people would bring up an album 
that was like cool, quote unquote, and kind of be like, well, you know, obviously this. <laughs> and I'm just like, oh, really? Obviously? Wow. Okay. All right. So with a year to go, we can start thinking about what we want to do next year um, for the music issue. Do you guys have any ideas to start? Uh, I don't know. Last year we did four covers. This year we went to 23 shows. Um, Next year, like maybe 50 covers? 50 covers and 150 shows. Yeah. Yeah. I think that would be good. Yeah. Um, It'll uh, be consistent. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's weird because sometimes, some years the music issue is just, some years it has a theme. I think most years it really doesn't. I think this is, I really like this because it's different from what we normally did. Last year, Margaret did a great piece about kids' rock camps, and then there were other pieces about, um, you know, so you want to make your own record, the steps to recording, uh, like yeah. a road journal from a musician. And I think that was really cool. But I like the fact that this year is one theme all the way through. And it, you know, it gives a shout out to different bands and different uh, venues and stuff like that. It gives everybody a chance to listen to something. So I don't know what we would follow. Because last year after the four covers, we thought, well, how the hell are we going to fig- follow hmm. this up? And, uh, you know, I think that this was a good follow up. But next year, I don't know. I yeah. don't know. I just had an epiphany. All right. What if we assembled. The perfect Pittsburgh band, like oh. the guitars from here, a bassist from here, yeah. a drummer from here, you know, backup. See, that would be kind of neat. Like, who would you and put like different sort of yeah. uh, styles together? And, and we could have like a tie-in showcase. One of my ideas was that we start a, a, a city paper band, mm-hmm. um, and then we have local musicians review our album. That's a great idea. Yeah. Oh, that is a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> you can play drums if you want. Okay. Uh, Charlie got a preferred instrument. Backup vocals. Backup vocals, okay. That's the thing too. Like I love, like when you <laughs> you're in the car and you're driving and you're singing. I don't sing lead. I sing backup, <laughs> and I try and hit the high parts that I can't hit. That's yeah. what I've always like. I've never wanted to be the star. I've just wanted to be yeah. the backup singer. That's what I've always wanted to be. All right. So then I was also thinking we could have our all of our writers sing their article for the week. I'm sure they'll all love it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we should have a city paper idol. Ryan Dito should. Oh love yeah. That. Oh I my God. Him. Like a, like a karaoke. <laughs> But then it, the lyrics will be whatever they write that yeah. week. Um, let's see. I have access to a, to a semi-professional karaoke machine. <laughs> we can make this happen. Do you think we can get one for The Office? I'll try. All right. Margaret Welsh, City Papers Music Editor, and Charlie Deach, Editor at Large, thank you. Thank, thank you. you. This week, Celine Roberts takes our soundbite segment into the Pennsylvania mountains to explore the tradition of salt rising bread with the Rising Creek Bakery. There, Jenny Bardwell and Susan Brown have been keeping this heritage food alive and baking in their ovens for the last 25 years. Celine Roberts here. I am in Mount Morris, Pennsylvania right now, which is one highway exit from Morgantown, West Virginia. And I'm at Rising Creek Bakery with Susan Brown and Jenny Bardwell. Jenny is the owner. Susan once worked here, but has now since retired, but is still very much involved in the Salt Rising Bread Project. And we're here to talk to them today about the Appalachian tradition of Salt Rising Bread. So let's start with just a basic description of what Salt Rising Bread is. Well, I first learned about Salt Rising Bread about about 30 years ago and I found out about it from Pearl Haynes who lived in Mount Morris uh, her whole life so almost over 90 years she lived here her family's from here and she made salt rising bread in a wooden bowl she died a couple years ago 
and was still making salt rising bread in that bowl that her great-grandfather had made. And when I first saw her making it, I was watching her. I was a baker. I'd had a bakery in the past and watching her bake it and realized there was no yeast put in that bread. And I was fascinated because it's the first bread I had ever heard about that there's no yeast. There's no sourdough yeast, no commercial yeast, and I fell in love with it. My connection to salt rising bread is that I grew up eating it. My grandmother made it in West Virginia. So, it's, and her mother and grandmother made it, so it's been a family tradition. And I always loved it, and I always wanted to make it. So I finally learned when she <laughs> passed away, I got really serious about it. I tried when she was living, and I never could get it, and then I said, I'm gonna make this work, so. Are you self-taught, or did you learn from a family member? Well, she gave me a lot of advice and sent me numerous of her handwritten salt rising bread recipes, which I still have, and I would try and call her and get this advice, get that advice, try again and work with it until I got it. But that's been over 25 years ago, so pretty good at it now. <laughs> so salt rising bread is uh, dense bread. It's fermented uh, naturally by the wild bacteria that are on the grains, and as a result of that, it gets a, a wonderful cheesy-like flavor. What's the salt component? Well, the salt component, it, there's a couple theories how salt rising bread got its name. One theory is that t over 200 years ago, the pioneer women were making this bread or had come up with a way to make bread without yeast that had potash or pearl ash in it to rise it. And these are a couple theories that Susan and I have researched from decades now and what we've found in the little literature on salt rising bread because it's been mostly an oral tradition passed down through families. So originally it was pearl ash or potash which is a type of chemist salt. Sodium bicarbonate, potassium bicarbonate, basically it's wood ashes. It was what we found is the early cookbooks in America shows that the pioneer women were the first to raise any baked goods with pearl ash, potash, which then later morphed into saleratus, which nobody hears about today, which is a form of baking soda. We now put baking soda in the salt rising bread. We think that it suppresses yeast or somehow buffers the fermentation so that it promotes the wild bacteria. Uh, another theory about salt rising bread is that it was coddled in warm rock salt that the women kept around their fires. Uh, and the pioneers, when they traveled westward during that migration period, the 1800s, latter 1800s, they would have salt barrels on the side of the wagon train. And we have uh, evidence of diaries of women who would keep their salt rising bread starter in the barrel of salt that was heated by the sun as the wagon traveled west. Commercial yeast wasn't even available here until 1860s, 1870s. So we have evidence of pioneer women making salt rising bread as early as the 1700s, late 1700s. So yeah. once you have that pot ash or pearl ash, walk me through what it would take to make a loaf of bread. Well, you would take a little bit of it because it's strong stuff. It's basically lye. That's what people make soap out of, right, back in the day. And uh, so it's very strong. So you, you only take a little bit and you, um, you'd add a little bit of that to your biscuits to raise them up. 
Now with Sol Rising Bread, you have to keep it warm. And it's uh, a starter that takes 10 to 12 hours. Then when you've had a successful starter, you add a little bit of water and a little bit of flour, and you set that in, a, in the same warm place for another usually one to two hours at the most. And that has to double in size, and that's called the sponge. Then you mix your flour and water in that to make salt. the dough, and a little bit of salt. For flavor. Mm -hmm. And you make the dough, it has to rise in the pans, and then you bake the bread. And any one of those stages can fail. I mean, we've gotten as far as putting the bread in the pans to rise, and it won't work, although the starter and the sponge have both worked. Really frustrating sometimes. And you've both been working on this for 20 years, and some days it's still a no-go. Yep. I'm always hopeful. Okay, we're not going to have any more failures now. <laughs> that was just by accident. One day I was at my house and this starter hadn't risen. I thought, well, golly, you know, what's wrong with it? And I've always been so careful not to mess with it. You know, just like carefully hold it like it's a baby or something. I thought, dang it, I'm tired of this. So I just took that jar and I just gave it a shaking. And I put it back in there and within an hour it was way up to the top of the jar. And we don't know really why that happened, but if you wait till the end, and sometimes if you give it a shake, it'll just come right up. So no more baby handling of the rising starters. It's a very difficult bread to make. It's very difficult. Which is one reason why people haven't, they've tried to make it and they haven't succeeded. What makes it more difficult than, let's say, your common sourdough? I think the key is because you have to keep the starter warm and you have to keep it between 104 and 110 degrees. And you start from scratch every day. Whereas sourdough, we have a sourdough starter here that's like eight, nine years old. You know, you keep feeding it and uh, it, you can get it to be more acidic or less acidic by certain tricks. But you keep the same one going. Whereas Saul Rising Bread is started fresh every single time you make it. And why won't it keep? Well, you're dealing with wild bacteria and there's just a totally different animal than yeast. And uh, so because we're dealing with wild bacteria, we're, we're not inoculating our starter with a pure culture. I, I don't even think it is a pure culture of bacteria. The little bit of research that's been done on similar breads as salt rising bread, which is one in Greece and there's one in Sudan, it shows that it's a symbiotic relationship between three bacteria. One of the things we haven't mentioned about salt rising bread is it does have a very strong odor. Some people cannot stand it and therefore they will not make it and they won't even have it in their house. <laughs> we have stories of husbands telling the woman that toaster has to go out on the back porch, I can't stand it, you know. Can you describe the odor or is it just totally of its own? <laughs> well, some of the key ways to describe it are like dirty gym shoes, uh, rotten cheese. Baby diapers. Baby dirty diapers. baby diapers. You are not selling me. I know, I know, but believe me, it doesn't taste like that. Well, if, if anybody knows how to make cheese, the beginning parts of cheese making are quite stinky. And they're not what the wonderful Parmesan, the Brie, tastes or smells like in the finished product. It's the same with salt rising bread. It's stinky at first, but it gets better. Tell me a little bit about the, the interactions that you've had with other women and other people that are making this bread. 
do you find that people come into your bakery here where you're selling it and they say, oh, you know, my grandmother made that or my mother made that. I can't believe you're selling it here. I know someone who makes it down the road from me. Everything you've just said, we've heard many times over. <laughs> people, we say anyone who's ever eaten salt rising bread has a story to tell about it because it's just that kind of a experience. Um, a lot of times it's because it was a grandmother or an aunt or someone whom they loved dearly who made the bread. And so the memory of the bread is connected to the person that they loved. And because it's hard to find, I think the memories go even deeper in the person because they long for that again. We did a survey here at the bakery to ask people, what is your favorite way of eating salt rising bread? And by far the most uh, favorite way is toasted with butter. It does make a wonderful toast because it's dense and it's um, thick and it just has a good toasting taste, I guess. I can't wait to try some of this. I'm, as soon as we turn off this microphone, that's my next order of business. <laughs> but uh, thank you for meeting with me. Look for Susan and Jenny's book this June on salt rising bread and the tradition of salt rising bread. And hopefully I can come back up and visit you again. Thank you very much for coming. Thanks, Celine. That's it for today. Thank you so much for listening. City Paper Podcast is produced by Ashley Murray and me, Alex Gordon, with Celine Roberts. This week's MP3 Monday track is Exactly As It Seems by a band I love, Delicious Pastries. Stream or download it and all our other free MP3 Monday tracks on our FFW, that's Fast Forward, music blog at www.pghcitypaper.com. And also make sure to check out the entire music issue at that very same web address. Additional music by me, Alex Gordon. Make sure you follow us on our killer Instagram account, that's at PGH City Paper. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Salad Book, the only social media app about salad. You can find us there and on the rest at PGH City Paper. And now we end, as we do every week, starting this week, with the wise words of John Kasich.